0: But I've been speaking to Pastor Peter during the week, so um, that's pretty understandable. He and I both have a bit of a macabre topic for our messages this morning. You can ask him about his tonight. Luke chapter 16, let's read uh, verses 19 to 24. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, "Father, Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon our time this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come and that we can examine your word and our uh, Lord that we can consider whatever you um, deem to be worthy enough to inspire in your word. I pray that today you would help us to realize, Lord, that this is a message you wanted us to be aware of. And I pray that we would take it as from the mouth of God. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes, Lord, to the reality that is beyond our senses. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to understand how this impacts our lives day by day. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One Christian author says this. He says, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this doctrine of hell if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. Some who call themselves followers of Jesus, some who call themselves witnesses of Jehovah, if you get what I mean, do remove it from their doctrine. They say, and I quote, what happens at death is no mystery to Jehovah, the creator of the brain. He knows the truth and in his word, the Bible, he explains the condition of the dead. It is clear teaching it is, it's clear teaching is this. When a person dies, he ceases to exist. Death is the opposite of life. The dead do not see or hear or think. Not even one part of us survives the death of the body. We do not possess any mortal, any immortal soul or spirit. And it goes on to say, and I quote again, he will never resurrect those he judges to be wicked, and those who are unwilling to change. Watchtower published that in a little booklet say, that says, What the Bible Really Teaches. I've got it on my bookshelf and just underneath the title, and I've got it written in permanent marker, Not This. <laughs> this is not what the Bible really teaches. Church of the Latter day Saints, uh, they teach about eternal punishment. And they say that eternal punishment doesn't mean that it lasts forever. Eternal punishment means that it's God's punishment. That's all that eternal means. Let me quote to you from their teaching body. They say, and I quote again, it is not written that there shall be no end to this torment, but it is written endless torment. Eternal punishment is God's punishment. This comes from the revelation to Joseph Smith in March 1830. Now, both of those quotes that I've just read to you are false doctrine. Don't go quoting and saying, Pastor Crockett said this in church this morning. Quoting to you from the Watchtower Society, which is the embodiment of doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I'm quoting to you from the Church of the Latter-day Saints, specifically from a revelation that Joseph Smith, their great prophet, received back in March 1830, when no one else in the world knew what God wanted except for him, apparently. And then those who don't believe in God at all, those that we would call atheists or agnostics, often consider themselves to be experts on the character of a God they don't believe in. Through personal conversations, I'm sure that you have come across the sentiment that people would express, a good God would never send people to hell. Not that they even believe in a God, (laughs) but they're experts on the character of God that doesn't exist, assuming that if he did exist, he would never send people to hell. We who are Bible believers this morning would probably all agree that it would be nicer to never have to think of hell. It would be easier. There are ways of explaining it away as we've seen other religions have turned to. And it's often quite an inconvenient doctrine for the Christian to have to hold. And not only in conversations that we have with unbelievers but also in the contemplation of our futures of the futures of our loved ones and people who we deem or who we would feel very uncomfortable considering in the pit of hell. So why should we believe in it? Why should we believe in the doctrine of hell? That's all we're going to have a look at this morning. I hope to get further today but we're going to have to leave that for next time to do it justice. But why should we believe in the doctrine of hell when it would be just easier and nicer not to? Well, first of all, hell is biblical, contrary to what the Latter-day Saints and the Jehovah's Witnesses might tell you. And I would encourage you, don't usually turn to them for what the Bible teaches in anything else. First of all, it's biblical. Let's, uh, the story that we just read in our introduction of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16 talks about a great number of details of sensing things and experience, which is after death. Now we're going to come back to that a little bit later in our message, but what I want to do is show to you that before we go to Luke chapter 16, that's not the only chapter that talks about hell in the Bible. If someone can try and explain away that passage, that's not all they have to deal with if they're trying to disprove hell. Let's have a look at Luke chapter 12 and verse 5. Each of these verses have a context in their passage uh, and in their time frame in which they're used. But this morning, I just want to look at some simple truths that come out of the verses themselves. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're self-evident, as you'll see. Self-sufficient. Luke chapter 12 and verse 5, Jesus is encouraging his disciples not to fear. And he says in Luke 12:5, But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. This verse, this verse tells us that there is something after death, and that hell is not just to be equated with death or the grave. They are two different ideas. There is a distinction in Scripture between the grave and a place of everlasting punishment. Now, at times, both of these things, the grave and a place of everlasting punishment are both called hell in the English. If we had time to go through and distinguish the Greek words and the Hebrew usage, we would see that sometimes those words, especially in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Sheol speaks more about the grave than it does about that place of everlasting punishment. But in the New Testament, we come across a word, Gehenna, in the Greek. This word Gehenna is translated hell in our English. And it's a reference to the geography around the area of Jerusalem. Gehenna translates as the land of Hinnom. If you know anything about the Old Testament, if you've been listening to Pastor's series on the man Asa, the King Asa, you'll know that the valley of Hinnom is the place where uh, people used to worship false gods. There was a continual burning in the valley of Hinnom as people worshipped gods down there. That was the place where they set the valley on fire and they would cause their children to pass through the flames, implying that their children were sacrificed in the worship in the valley of Hinnom. This is a valley that wraps from the south of Jerusalem up around the west. That's to me this direction, that's to you this direction. (laughs) Sorry, up around the southeast Of Jerusalem so for you it goes this way idol sacrifices occurred there but then later on once it was defiled by a number of the kings of Judah it turned into a rubbish dump a place where Jerusalem would take and dump their rubbish and so it would be a place of constant burning not of idol worship but a place of constant burning of filth of rubbish and this is the context in which this word Gehenna is used in our New Testament. When the Lord Jesus Christ spoke about Gehenna, if he was in the southeastern corner of the city, people who were hearing his message could have smelt Gehenna. They could have smelt the constant burning or those in the Old Testament would have known that area of Gehenna, the place where it was constantly on fire. So when the Bible speaks about hell, it's not just speaking about the grave, especially not in verses like Luke chapter 12 and verse five. Because if this verse is speaking, if this verse is equating death and hell, it doesn't make sense. The point of this verse is in the distinction. People can kill, Jesus is saying, But you need to not just fear people, rather fear the God who can not only kill, but then once you're dead, send you to hell. If hell and the grave are the same thing, then it doesn't make sense because God can't do anything more than people on the earth can do. People on earth can kill you and put you in a grave. God can do more. Now, in case you're wondering, uh, does anyone apart from Luke mention hell? Because we've looked at Luke 16 and Luke chapter 12. Yes, Matthew chapter 25 mentions hell as well. Have a look in Matthew 25 from verse 41. Luke chapter 25 Verse 41, another quotation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Look down at verse 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now you'll notice that there is no mention of the actual English word hell in these verses. But Jesus confirms the reality of a place of everlasting punishment, a place of everlasting fire, and the contention is not really over the word, it's more over the existence of a place. Of punishment after death the lake of fire let's distinguish just for a moment there is a difference between hell and the lake of fire in our bibles hell is the temporary holding place of punishment of the wicked but at the time of the end death and hell shall deliver up all of those that are in them and then when they are judged by god at the great white throne all of those who are not found in the lamb's book of life not found with saving faith will be cast into the lake of fire, the eternal place of damnation for those who are unbelievers. And so there is a distinction between the two. But both of those ideas, both hell and the lake of fire, are in opposition to this false teaching that there is nothing after death. Hell and the lake of fire are both places of punishment after the time of physical death. And this eternal punishment, as we noted there, if you read through Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. And so we can say, well, God didn't originally design this to be for people. However, it is God who chooses to consign people to hell. So it doesn't eradicate the idea, the association between God and this hell. However, it is people who choose to follow Satan and his angels to hell. It's people who choose to believe the lies that they are being taught and therefore they are the ones who choose to go to this place that was originally designed for some things else. And so followers of Christ, if they read their Bibles honestly, are left with no choice but to believe in a place called hell we must and there is no doubt that Jesus taught about hell and if we're not believers in what Jesus taught then we need to reconsider calling ourselves Christians hell is a biblical doctrine so why should we believe in hell number one it's biblical number two it's logical it's logical 1st John chapter 4 and verse 8 this is A verse that is run to very swiftly by those who don't like to believe in a hell. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. They probably couldn't tell you the reference. But 1 John 4, 8 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. God is love. So how can a loving God do that? How can a loving God consign people to everlasting punishment in a place that is torturous? How can a loving God do that? How can, that be, how can God's love and this action be reconciled? Well, it is entirely expected that a loving God would judge. Rather than being inconsistent, it's actually consistent. They don't just exist side by side. One flows from the other. E.H. Gifford said this, human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. You See, it's not apathy that proves love. It's care and therefore anger at the result of something that is ruining the intended good that one would have in mind for their loved ones. Becky Pippert, in her book called Hope Has Its Reasons*, she says this, and I quote, If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the plague of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. You see, judgment is not incompatible with love. Judgment or justice shows that God cares about something, someone. God uses negative consequences frequently through the scriptures to try and change behavior. God is a believer in that. God says this to David about his son Solomon. He says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, because I love him, I won't do anything and I'll just be nice. He never says that. He says, if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. I'll punish him using unbelievers because I love him. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 11. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. God makes threats to us in the scriptures. And God never makes a threat that is empty He doesn't say, watch out for hell, watch out for hell, watch out for hell. It's real. And then when he gets to the end, he says, oh, look, I was just bluffing to try and get you to repent. You don't really have to go there. That would be far worse than a God who sends people to hell that is a loving God. God's warnings are always real. Not only is judgment consistent with love, and so that is surely a logical conclusion, Justice also demands a hell. This is a logical conclusion. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Have a look there, please. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 16. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment that wickedness was done, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness that iniquity was there. The place where they should have found justice, the court systems, the king, whoever it might have been in in power, were corrupt. They were judging by wickedness in the place where people should have found justice. And so what's Solomon's conclusion in verse 17? It says, I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. See, our concept of justice, the concept that every person in the world has, demands that there be a hell. Demands that there be one. Why? Because justice is not done here. People get away with things that are terrible and they are never brought to justice for it. People do ugly things and then take their own lives, having never had to pay the price. Are we to believe that they just get away with it? I would encourage you to do some reading, do some research and find out just how many people from the Holocaust were actually brought to justice. Are we to believe that that's just never going to be rectified? Are we to believe that this sense of justice that we have within ourselves is something that we are always meant to feel that we were made with and that we're never, ever going to find satisfaction for? How do we explain this sense of justice that we have within ourselves if in this world it's never realized? See, we're yearning for something eternal. Hell is the logical conclusion of the Christian worldview. But further than that, hell is the logical conclusion of the human condition. Now let's return to our account in Luke chapter 16. Having seen how the idea of hell is both biblical and logical, we need to now see that hell is frightful. Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. in his bosom now, let's just clarify before we go any further this rich man wasn't in hell because he was rich hell is the place of punishment for sin we saw the Lord Jesus Christ mentioned that in Matthew chapter 25 when he spoke about a place of eternal damnation that was a result of people not showing kindness not showing love that's the cause of going to hell the point of mentioning that this was a rich man is saying that this man's wealth could not save him from the consequences of his sin But isn't it interesting that this dead man could see? He lift up his eyes and seeth Abraham afar off. This dead man could be tormented. In hell he lift up his eyes being in torments. And this dead man was also aware of the other place. The place where people weren't in torments. Then verse 24, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that beggar who used to have sores all over his body. Send him and I'll drink the water off the end of his finger. That he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. This dead man was tormented in a flame. Eternal damnation is not annihilation. There is not nothing after death. There is something. This story shows to us that people are conscious. People are sensitive. People are aware of the broader reality outside of their own suffering. That's a terrible thought. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Son... Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. In hell this man would also have regret. He would have a memory of the things that he had in this life and the choices that he made in this life. Abraham is calling upon him to remember the things that he did in his life the luxuries that he had verse 26 and beside all this between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot neither can they pass to us that would come from thence and this man was also helpless he couldn't leave And more than that, no one could come to provide him help in that place. It was isolated. Verse 27. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Sad, isn't it, that this man in his own torment was also powerless to warn those he loved who he knew were coming to the same fate. He remembered them and he remembered that they were following after him and there was nothing he could do to stop them. Most of these features of hell are repeated elsewhere. The helplessness, the pain... The loneliness. And they should serve as a firm warning for each of us that death is not the destination. If you can reach the grave in safety, you're not safe yet. Death is the door to eternity. And for many, that eternity, in fact, we could say for most, that eternity will be hell. It's frightful, it's real. But it's helpful because it helps us to ask that question, where will you spend eternity? And seeing the lot of those who go to hell, why would you ever live the life of the rich man who, when he got to hell, regretted it rather than live the life of faith where you receive the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you for your sin that you would never have to go to a place like that? You see, we can see from this example that even if you don't care now, and you might not, you might not care now about hell. And many people live their lives like that. You might not care now, you will care then. Because this guy was like that. He didn't care about hell in his life. Couldn't care less. Went off living a life of the rich and powerful. Even a guy like that, when he got to hell, he cared. Even a guy like that, when he got to hell, wished he had a second chance. When he got to hell, he wished, he thought, if I could get back to that life, I would do things differently. What does that tell us today? It tells us that the sort of philosophy that says, I don't care about hell, it'll all work out in the end, is wrong. It's flawed. It's foolish and it's ignorant in the face of the scriptures that lay out for us the reality of a hell that can be avoided. There is no reason for us to walk blindly towards a coming painful eternity and think, oh, I'll I'll just handle it when I get there. People who thought like that regret it. They wish they could have their chance again. But there are no second chances in hell. You can wish for that second chance for all eternity and you'll never ever get it. And that is the worst thing about hell. There is no more hope. You can get through a lot of things even if you've just got an ounce of hope, just a little bit. You can get through anything. But when there's no hope and nothing's going to change for all eternity, that's hell. <laughs> that's hell. The rich man never sat in his eternity and thought, well, at least my life was worth it. At least I played hard, enjoyed life with my friends, got the best out of life, lived it to its nth degree. At least it was worth it. This is not much chop here in hell, but at least it was worth it. It's the way many people think about eternity. This man who lived that sort of a life didn't think that way. If you think like that, this is one of you in hell. Hell is a very important truth for us. And it's one that even as Christians, we shouldn't play down. It's one that we shouldn't ignore. The judgment of God is coming for all of us. And that's why we need to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's not because he's going to make your life flowery and lovely. It's because there's eternal damnation to escape. Jesus Christ will save us not just from our sadness, not just from our difficulties or our um, social problems. The Lord Jesus Christ can change many of those things, but he primarily is trying to save us from the consequences of eternal punishment in hell. That's why we get saved. Without hell, we won't see the need for being forgiven of sins. No wonder people try and pretend it's not real. If there's no hell, I don't need Jesus. You know, as Christians, if we minimize this doctrine of hell, we won't see the need for Jesus either. We're going to look at that a little bit more in our next message. That's what I want to focus upon then. But I want you to turn just to close to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. 2 Peter 3, 9. Now Peter uses the warning of the Lord's coming as the motivation for change here but I think we could rightly apply it to the Lord's judgment whether it's at his coming or after our own death he says in 2nd Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness that is some were thinking that the Lord was just wasting time not going to bring about the second coming because it hasn't happened for so long goes on to say then but is long suffering to us would not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance whenever we think about the doctrine of hell whenever we think about the doctrine of eternal punishment we need to couple it with this expression in second peter chapter 3 and verse 9 he is not willing that any should perish while hell is real god is not willing that anyone should have to go there by the blood of his son He has made it possible to save every single last one of the sinful race of humanity. Every single one. God has made it possible for everybody to be saved. Everyone. Sadly, I'll just read to you the last portion from Luke 16, verses 30 and 31. This is the rich man, he says this. He said, Nay, Father Abraham, says so after Abraham had said, Well they'll just let them listen to Moses and the prophets. Luke 16, 30, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. If I went back to them, or you send someone from the dead back to them and tell them that this is all real, then they'll repent. In verse 31, Abraham says, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose. From the dead. You know what? Abraham was right, wasn't he? Because one did come back from the dead. And who was it who came back from the dead? Jesus Christ, who also happens to be the one who taught about hell. The one who taught about hell has the seal of authority because he himself rose from the dead. Surely we would believe him. We need a messenger from the other side of death. Someone who can tell us what it's like on the other side. Someone who can tell us if these things are real or not. What are we going to expect? Lo and behold, what does God send? He sends his son back from the dead as confirmation that everything that he taught is true. You want to know what's waiting for you on the other side of death? Ask Jesus. Jesus says in the Bible, hell is real. He says it's a consequence for your sin and we have all sinned. And he says, turn to him because he's the only one who can save us. That's what it says in his word. And yet some people say, I'm going to wait and see for myself. Words of Abraham are true. No one just believes the scriptures anymore. Sadly, too many don't. God has done all that a loving and a just God could do to prevent us from going to hell. He's done everything that he could. No one thinks that hell is a nice idea. Let's not pretend that we do this morning. It's not easy for a Christian to believe in hell. But it's true. It's true. And that brings us to the question this morning, where will you spend eternity? And if you've settled that and you know that Christ is your savior, what does it matter to you that Jesus saved you from this place? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we can be assured of our salvation. If we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and call upon you for salvation, we thank you, Father, that we can be in a place of confidence, Lord, knowing that you are our savior, rescued us from that place of eternal damnation. Heavenly Father, I pray, please work in the hearts of all those this morning, Lord, who are here but are not sure that they are saved. My God, I commit myself to you. I pray, Lord, that you would help all of us to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation for us. We thank you and we praise you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.